Welcome to episode 23 of Kept Secrets. I'm your host, Nikki Rothrock. This podcast is a way that I try to help others who also have experienced child sexual abuse, neglect, or trauma. I will discuss my personal experiences and the treatments that helped heal the brokenness. My abuse started as early as five to six years old and by more than 20 different perpetrators. There's a long history, but I've created this podcast in hopes of helping one person. I hope that person is you. Hey, everybody. I know it's been a few weeks. Um, I was in a bad mental place, I think. Like, I, every time I would think about doing an episode, I would just get distracted or, you know, I just wasn't into it. So, I just took a break. But I'm back for this week. <clears throat> Excuse me. Tonight's episode I'm going to do on an article that I found on the internet. Um, it was, let's see, one of the sources is childhoodtraumarecovery.com. And there's a bunch of other ones that I'm happy to post on my Facebook group um, if anybody is interested. So the title of this one is Five Adult Behaviors of Someone That Experienced Trauma as a Child. I was like, ooh, this looks interesting. So I'm just going to read some of it, and then I'm going to give you some examples of my personal um, experience, and hopefully it'll help. So childhood trauma can result from anything that makes a child feel helpless and disrupts their sense of safety and security, including sexual, physical, or verbal abuse domestic violence, an unstable or unsafe environment, separation from a parent, neglect, bullying, serious illness, or intrusive medical procedures. This is per Casa Palmera, P-A-L-M-E-R-A, treatment center. Devastating. This is one word that accurately describes the effects of childhood trauma. Imagine how trauma whether acquired by abuse, domestic violence, parental separation, bullying, neglect, illness, or something else, can impact a young person's sense of self and the world around him or her. Trauma and adulthood. Trauma, of course, doesn't merely stop once someone becomes an adult. That's the truth. The human brain grows faster between the ages of zero to six years old, and often the trauma is hardwired into the person's mind. That's pretty interesting. I think I knew the part about um, the zero to six years old, but I didn't, I guess I didn't really think about how it is hardwired for us survivors. So, um, an individual suffering from trauma experienced during childhood is often unaware how it impacts their life. The reason is that recall of specific childhood events is buried somewhere in the subconscious. Stories abound of patients who, during a therapy session, experience the surfacing of traumatic memories. While a vital step in the recovery process, recalling trauma can be very overwhelming. And that is definitely something that I can relate to. Um... One episode that I plan on doing soon is about therapy. Um, But I wanted to be able to lay it out a little bit better for you. So that's why I went with this one instead this week. But I have very vivid memories. 
Archie has made his presence known. Unfortunately, I should probably tell you guys this because my dogs have always been in the background, but about, about three weeks ago, maybe that's part of my issue, but about three weeks ago, Belle, our 15-year-old lab, um, started getting really bad. Like she was just having some health issues. She's older. She was 15. Um, she was getting a little aggressive toward Archie. And so my husband, which this dog was inherited, it was his mother's dog. And then when his stepfather passed away a couple years ago, we got her. And because I couldn't, I couldn't see like having her put down just because no one in the family wanted her. So we took her and gave her um, what I felt like was a fun life up until the very end. So we had to have her put down about three weeks ago. And you guys, if you've ever experienced that, the grief, sadness, all of it wrapped up is heartbreaking. Um, I cried all day. I went to the vet with my husband and had her procedure done and then went back to work and then I literally cried from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed that day because I just wished that there was something else that we could do for her but we weren't able to and I know that um, the vet seemed to think she was in some pain because she was just really old. So I feel like we did the humane thing, but it still doesn't help with the sadness. And little Archie gets all the attention now and he loves that. So I've kind of uh, stepped away from giving him treats, but you'll hear him in the background doing his little whiny butt stuff. But I got wise and I put his dog food up here in his special little bowl. So I throw little pebbles of his food out. He doesn't even know. He's such a goober. He just eats them like they're treats. So there's a little trick. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay, so back to the subject. I, um, let's see. Recalling things can be very overwhelming in treatment. But here are five behaviors that a victim of childhood trauma displays through adulthood. I'm going to go through these one by one. And if I can give you a decent example from my, my past, then I'm happy to. Um, okay, so chronic tension is the first one. Trauma originating outside of the body example abuse assault stress causes the brain to activate the fight-or-flight response stress hormones such as cortisol and nephrine I can never say that flood the body which prepares to defend itself during this time our body automa automatically will tense up so here's an example this is you guys know if you've been listening um, you know, my lack of taste for the Andy Griffith show, because that is something that happened. Stop. That is something that was on in the background during my first few months of abuse with my ex-stepfather, Tom. So every time I hear that, I tense up. I, I literally don't do it on purpose. It's like a response. Um, so a, about a month ago or so, maybe a, maybe a little longer than that, um, my coworkers and I, there's a local, uh, like a little bar that we go to to have lunch sometimes just because McDonald's and Burger King and Subway get boring. So we go to this little bar and um, 
they had, uh, they always have like a handful of older men sitting up at the bar and then we sit at our big table. Well, while we're sitting there, there was like six of us from work. I hear the freaking Andy Griffith sound go off in the background and I just stopped and I looked around and I was like, what is that? Why is that going off in this bar? And it just kept going and I was like, okay, (laughs) like, I don't like this. So one of my coworkers, she's like, you don't like the Andy Griffith show? Two of my other coworkers who are friends of mine, they both go, no, really loud, (laughs) which was awesome. Kudos to them because they stuck up for me. But this person at the bar apparently had the Andy Griffith theme song as their ringtone. So anytime their phone would ring, that stupid song would go off and I would tense up every single time. So eventually uh, we left and I was like, man, you guys, I'm sorry that, you know, not all of my coworkers know about my past, but a good majority of them do because I consider them my friends and, you know, I'm not going to hide what made me me from my friends. So um, anyway, that was just one of the things that made me tense up and it was, it was not intentional. Um, It was... (laughs) very frustrating for myself because I'm like, dude, it's been forever. Why is this song still haunt my brain and my body physically reacts when I hear it? It's because of the trauma. Okay. So the problem is that tension doesn't always dissipate once the threat is removed or neutralized. In this case, the brain's neutral networks will maintain a state of hype a state of hypervigilance acting as if the threat remains and preparing the body accordingly. So I don't think that I was like going to jump up and leave because I've tried to do some more, some of the exposure therapy with that song. Um, seriously, you need to stop. I'm not going to be feeding you all of your food by hand. Um, so I don't know if I can, can't really think of any other situations other than um one time I was at a bowling alley and uh Tom happened to be there and the first time I saw him my body reacted meaning I tensed up so that is something that I can't control when I'm you know even driving through the one of the smaller towns um one day there was a a guy behind me on a motorcycle and I don't know I just always look around you know to see if I know anybody and it just happened to be the guy who attacked me when I was 12 and oh my gosh I was by myself sitting at a stoplight now my rational self is like okay he's not gonna do anything he probably doesn't even recognize you first of all I probably can't even see you over the the tinted windows so it's really not a big deal But the irrational side, the traumatized side is like, oh my gosh, we need to get out of here now because he's going to see us. He's going to follow us. He's going to know where we live. And then he's going to do the same thing he did to us, you know, 40 years or 30 years ago. 32 years ago. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I feel old. Um, So anyway, I guess that is part of the chronic tension. Anytime I see something that reminds me of my past or is directly related to my past, I will tense up. 
Now what's weird, stop it. What's weird is Ryan and I, he's my person. And actually today, you guys, this is so funny. This is so dumb that I remember this. But 29 years ago today, tonight, Ryan asked me to be his girlfriend. And I was like, I woke up this morning. I was like, something's going on the June June 14th. Because like the 12th is my grandmother's birthday. And then the 14th was always a special day to me because Ryan asked me to be his girlfriend. So that was exciting to me this morning when I realized what day it was. I don't even think I told him, so he doesn't remember. (laughs) But anyway, I don't have that response to him. I never have, and I hope I never do. Um, because he didn't, he, though he was in my life at that time, excuse me, it was after all of the trauma, but it was when I was starting to really, uh, the trauma was really showing itself in my behavior. So, um, I don't see that ever being an issue with Ryan, but anyway, So if you think about your life and if you have been traumatized and you, the next time you tense up or the next time something causes you to freeze or whatever, I think the chronic tension can be uh, different, but it's, it does give you that fight or flight feeling. Shut up. Oh my gosh. It does give you that fight or flight, um, feeling or, you know, the, the, I got to get out of here, you know, and that is, that kind of leads into the next one. Um, social withdrawal research demonstrates that childhood trauma contributes to social anxiety disorder or SAD parental abuse example, um, insulting, swearing, verbal aggression, and emotional neglect for example, not feeling cared for, loved, or nurtured, relate directly to the onset onset of social anxiety disorder. Uh, victims of childhood trauma who demonstrate social withdrawal often do so out of anxiety and fear. Uh, social anxiety disorder patients report feeling, quote, an intense, persistent fear of being watched and judged by others, unquote. And may isolate themselves to prevent this feeling. So, I kind of go through phases with social withdrawal. Like, um, Archie doesn't agree with that, but I, uh, hold on. I think I was criticized a lot by Tom and by that I mean it it was more the nobody no man is ever gonna want you stuff you know you're he never really made fun of my weight um that I can remember but uh it wasn't just him you know I when you are 9, 10, 11, 12 into your early teens and you are sexually active almost on a daily basis and your your hormones are growing or just whatever they do <laughs> coming to surface, um, 
you know, you start comparing yourself with people that you may be in school with. Um, You may find one thing and really focus on that one thing. Like mine has always been my weight. Uh, Some people, it might be their big butt or their little butt or their big chest or little chest or their nose or the fact that they're short or they're tall. You know, whatever that one thing is that maybe somebody criticized you for, then you obsess over that and you don't want other people to see that, so you withdraw. That's that's my interpretation of this. So, for instance, um, when I was in my, like, cocoon stage of my faith, like, where I was really going through treatment and I was uh, really focusing on my walk with God and uh, just, I'm trying to figure out a way to explain this. I, I did not socialize a lot. I did with my close friends because they were my support system. So, you know, I had a handful of friends, some family that I would see occasionally, but I really did not go outside of my box a lot. Um, I focused on school. I focused on, you know, figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. What do you want? No. Quit. So in that social withdrawal, I I right now to this day still have social anxiety disorder. I have depression because I believe they are the long-term side effects of my childhood abuse. So, um, I don't know. Everybody is different in how they either withdraw. Some people really like act out, but this article mostly talks about just the withdrawing. So moving on to number three, uh, persistent panic, which is different than the anxiety. Um, Excuse me. Both anxious and non-anxious brains are continually learning. Unlike the anxious person, however, a non-anxious individual can more easily unlearn life's lessons that it encounters. Stop. No. An anxious person has a hard time with this. To illustrate, imagine two people receiving a poor performance review and are scheduled to follow up with their manager. Unless told otherwise, the non-anxious person is likelier to interpret the meeting as a non-threatening neutral event. On the other hand, the anxious person may begin to panic about receiving a second negative review. Worse, their anxious brain... (laughs) I'm laughing because I have a story about this. Their anxious brain may be unable to concentrate on anything other than the meeting. They will remain in in a constant state of worry unless told otherwise. So, um, one of my coworkers, anytime, (laughs) actually there's two of them, but anytime there is a closed door meeting, uh, Almost always, I will have one of these two say, do I still have a job? (laughs) Am I getting fired? And I don't know how much of it is serious. I mean, 
obviously that is not the case. Like, they're not getting fired. But they act exactly the way that I would. Anytime that, like, upper management has a meeting or something, I am always anxious that I'm either going to be laid off for my job or my position's going to change or something like that. So (laughs) I can definitely understand this. So like it's, if somebody calls you and they're, or texts you, this is the worst. Um, we need to have a talk later. So like, let's say, and my husband doesn't do this, but if he were to text me and be like, we need to talk later. Okay. Well, what the heck are we talking about? I need to know what I'm, I need to be prepared for this. Are you going to break up with me? Like, what's the deal? So my brain, I'm constantly like, oh my gosh, he's going to leave me. Like, I am, this is the most secure relationship I have ever had, including relationships with my parents and friends and things like that. So I don't believe that that's the case ever, but that is a worst case scenario where my brain would go. So I don't know if you experienced that, but okay. So we'll go back through the first one. We got chronic, chronic tension, social withdrawal, persistent panic. Number four, fear avoidance. It is human nature to circumvent what we fear, but childhood trauma victims take this avoidance to the extreme. While you may have an innate, (laughs) innate, sorry, I can't say that word either, fear of going to the dentist, you'll probably still go. Why? Because the benefit of taking action overrule the fear response. Adults with a history of trauma often allow fear to dictate their actions. Using the dentist visit scenario, they're more likely to give into the impulse to avoid the dentist, essentially allowing fear to cripple their intentions. The strong urge to avoid things seen as remotely threatening can seriously impede on the quality of life. Um, so with this one, I think... Mine would just be like avoiding certain people who may make me feel bad about something or, you know, if they're uh, maybe someone who has hurt me or, or whatever. But I really like this example because the normal non-anxious brain would most likely be like, yeah, I got to go to the dentist because if I don't go... My teeth are going to rot and fall out of my head. Well, if if you're an anxious person and you get there and you're like, what if they pull all my teeth out? I'm not going. I'm just not going. That's it. I'm staying home. I'm not going. Do you see the extreme, like, most likely your dentist is not going to pull your teeth out unless you ask them to. So when you think about it, like, when you start to really fear something, kind of stop and think about why you fear it. Is it because you you don't like the drilling sound, which I absolutely hate, and I hate the smell when they're drilling. Like, it's just gross. And um, that was... <laughs> I don't know how many people are just going to shut me off now because it's traumatizing to have this conversation. But um, I can understand, um, and I really do like this example. So... Uh, Number five, underachievement. This one's interesting. 
Researchers from the University of Florida and George Mason University link trauma to many poor life outcomes. From the paper, this is a quote, for students that for students, the result of academic underachievement reached beyond the educational setting often lead to deviant behaviors, fewer opportunities in life, and difficulty earning a living wage, unquote. So this takes me back to a session that I had with Beth, one of our first sessions um, when I was, I think I was just getting out of high school and she was asking me like what I was going to do. Um, and I was like, I don't know. I was working at a gas station and I felt okay with that because, you know, it was a job and I liked it. And I think I was, I must've been 18 at that time because that's what I was doing. So, um, uh, she asked me, she's like, well, why don't you go to college? And I was like, I just looked at her like she had two heads and I was like, People like me don't go to college. And she's like, why not? And I was like, because we don't. Like, my mom went to college for a little while, but, like, my dad didn't go to college. Um, nobody else really. I mean, there there was some cousins, I think, that had, like, some special certifications, like medical and uh, stuff like that, but... Nobody actually went and got, I, I may be misspeaking on this, but nobody at that time when I was 18 went to college. It just wasn't something that I ever thought about. And um, had I not been asked that question, I probably would have never gone. And I probably would have never um, experienced the growth that I did, like, I'm telling you guys, when I got into grad school, like every paper, every project, every presentation, whatever it was, had to do with this topic, the childhood sexual abuse. Um, and I grew so much in myself by doing the research and reading the books and, you know, really diving into it and trying to understand why I was the way that I am or why I am the way that I am. So had I not gone to school, you know, I may still be working at the gas station. I would hope I would make like $10 an hour because I think at the time I was making $8 an hour. I mean, this was 20, 25 years ago, 26 years ago. So, you know, and I am not saying that there's anything wrong with earning an honest living. I'm not saying that. Please don't take it that way. Um, what I'm saying is when she asked me that question, it kind of piqued my interest. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I guess I could go to college because she told me, she's like, you can get Pell Grants. You can get, you know, I do remember her saying that there were books of, uh, scholarships and grants and stuff in the library. All I have to do is just go and write letters to them. And I was like, that's, that's a little much, but let's see what, what happens here. So I got involved in, or I went to a college, um, 
a little camp, you know, like a, it was an IU campus, but it was not the main campus. So it was like a sub campus. I don't know what you call it, but, uh, I went and I applied and I took the test that I had to take because when I was in high school, you guys, I didn't have to take the SAT or the ACT or the RESPECT or whatever. I didn't have to take those because I did not have a thought of going to college. So when I um, was able to take these tests, you guys, I felt more dumb than ever, but apparently I was able to get into the college and it started a very long, long process of going to school because I, I enjoyed it. It was a challenge. It was, you know, there was a small community, like undergrad school is a lot different than graduate school because in undergrad school, everybody is kind of in these classes like math and science and statistics and all of this stuff. They're, everybody's doing different um, majors. But when you get into graduate school, that's your people. These are the people who have the same interests as you. So for mine, it was mental health and addictions. But my emphasis, my expertise was going to be on childhood sexual trauma. Um, and it was just so cool because it's like, these are my people. These people understand, you know, the welfare system and, you know, Department of Child Services. Like, there were so many people that I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is so cool. So, um, and that's another thing. I never would have gone to graduate school had Beth not mentioned it because I had graduated uh, with my bachelor's degree and she was like, so what are you going to do now? And I'm like, uh, learn to play the piano. <laughs> so, I never did that, but I did uh, apply for grad school and I got accepted like right down at the very last like deadline, I got it and I, I would not change it because that helped me so much in understanding my brain and why I am the way that I am. So if you are feeling underachieved or like you just don't have the motivation to move outside of your box because of the fear of the fear avoidance, of failure or these people are going to know my secret or whatever. I say go for it because the personal growth that you have from that is awesome. Um, you know, I still have some friends that I met when I was in college and, you know, my girlfriend Janet who passed away last year, like she was somebody that I met in math because I, I freaking hate math and I work in finance. Isn't that funny? Um, I, <laughs> I think I've said this before that I approached her because she looked super smart and she looked like she would be a dependable study buddy. So I remember, uh, leaving our first class and I was like, hi, I was like, um, I'm looking for a study friend and, uh, and she's like, okay, well, you know, it was really super awkward, but then we had the best friendship that came out of that. And for her, it was, it was the rest of her life friendship with me. So we loved each other so much and 
she worked with me through all of this trauma. Um, her and my best friend, Brooklyn. Um, so anyway, I wasn't trying to go off topic, but I just want to encourage you to not settle for things because even at minimum, the personal growth that you will get is worth it. Um, the people that you meet, the, just, it opens your brain to other things, you know, um, even if it's something like getting another job because you don't like the job that you're in or maybe leaving your spouse or your not, I'm not advocating divorce. I'm just saying like, if you're in an unhappy relationship and you know, it's like the Reba McIntyre song is their life out there. It's like, you just have to, you have to take the steps and you have to figure out what you want in your life. And I'm still struggling with that in certain things. Um, I'm taking a leadership class with some of my, another group of friends that I have. And, uh, I've had some really eye opening things about living with intention and being consistent and exceeding expectations. Those three things are so freaking challenging for me that I literally have to have post-it notes to remind myself. So, uh, that's all about that. But anyway, so under achievement, the research, (laughs) that sounded funny. The research team also found a correlation between socioeconomic status and trauma, traumatic stress. People from disadvantaged background are 65% more likely to have experienced trauma as a child than someone from a middle-class background. Not saying it doesn't happen in middle or higher class, but 65%, that's a freaking ton more likely. And I tell you, I've said this before about myself, like I, we didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. I know Archie, it's, it's terrible but we you know I think the type of people that were brought into my life because we were poor um, people who really didn't have uh, boundaries they didn't respect boundaries they didn't have a lot of goals in their own lives they just were very impulsive and hey I'm going to abuse this kid. Um, it's terrible, but excuse me. It's really interesting to actually see this in writing that people from disadvantaged backgrounds are 65% more likely to have experienced trauma as a child than someone from middle class background. So if that doesn't motivate you, (laughs) I'm just joking. Um, so those were the five. So we have chronic tension, social withdrawal, persistent panic, fear avoidance, and underachievement. So getting help for your trauma. And this could kind of lead into my next episode about therapy. I haven't decided yet. So first and most important, if you know a child being maltreated or abused, contact your local child protective service office or law enforcement agency. It is never, ever, ever, I put the extra evers in there, too late to begin healing the wounds of the past. While taking action may be difficult, proper treatment can make a big difference even if it's someone's someone else who is lending you an ear. Now, 
per helpguide.org, a reputable, reputable organization focusing on mental health, there are four things that someone can do immediately to begin the healing of their traumatic past. Number one, exercise to ease the impact of trauma. Boo. <laughs> exercise sucks. I'm just joking. Spoken like a true overweight person, but exercise, it really does help. Um, Aren't you haven't done that since you was a puppy? Quit. He's trying to take my socks off. Um, exercise. Oh, I don't like to sweat, but I will tell you not too long ago, um, I was working out with some of my coworkers and my husband and I did feel better. So it does help. Um, trauma disrupts your body's natural equilibrium. Freeze. Freezing you in a state of hyperarousal and fear. In essence, your nervous system gets stuck. Do some physical activity for 30 minutes, five days per week. That seems a bit excessive. This seems, if this seems too much of a commitment, try doing three 10-minute bursts of daily exercise. That's still excessive. But if exercise is your thing, try it. See if it helps. Um, Number two. Don't isolate yourself. Connecting to others face-to-face will help you heal. So make an effort to maintain your relationships and avoid spending too much time alone. Now, um, I have some friends who like to be alone who can, I don't know, read and watch TV and listen to this awesome podcast. I'm just joking. Um, I didn't used to really like to be by myself. Um, I know for a long time, like my, in adulthood, like before um, I got married, I would live by myself and then my dad would either move in with me or I would move in with him. And I think it was just because we both, although we fought a lot because we're a lot alike, I think, but having that person at home was helpful, like you weren't going to be there by yourself. And I think that helped both of us. Um, but then once I got married, I still don't like it when, when Ryan is not here, like tonight he's bowling and you know, it makes, I like being able to do the podcast and stuff, but when I know he's going to be at home, even if he's just sitting in the living room playing video games or working because he works from home, It's just comforting knowing that he's here. Um, When, right after we got married, I got into a pretty deep depression for about, about a year and a half. And it was to the point where I would get up, go to work. I drove an hour and a half to work. I would work, come home. He would be gone because he was working a second job. And then I would be in bed by like 10 o'clock just to turn around and get up, go to work, come home. He would be gone. So I spent a lot of time alone. And like on the weekends, the weekends that he didn't have his kids, um, he would work. And so I would come home on Friday. I would go to bed Friday night and I wouldn't get out of bed until Monday morning. You guys, it was terrible. It was 
horrible because I didn't like being alone. Um, I, even though I lived close to my family, everybody's busy with their own lives. Like this is my dad's side of the family. Like everybody was busy with their own lives. It's, I just isolated super bad and it was, it was not fun. And I don't remember really what pulled me out of that other than we moved to the town where I work, which was about an hour and a half closer to work. So, um, Ryan, I think he quit that part-time job because we moved so far away. It was pointless for him to go in making minimum wage, you know. So then we were able to get things back on track. I mean, our our marriage was fine. I just was super depressed. Like did not want to do anything. Just stayed at home by myself all the time and I hated it. So Okay, so don't isolate yourself. Number three, regulate your nervous system. It says, this one is important, so please pay pay close attention. You can pull over if you're driving. (laughs) I'm kidding. Okay, no matter how agitated, anxious, or out of control you feel, it is important to know that you can change your arousal system and calm yourself. Okay, how? (laughs) I'm asking. Lower your arousal levels by engaging in mindful breathing or meditation. Take 60 breaths, focusing on, focusing your attention on each exhale. That's a lot. I would probably lose count after like 10. Um, but that's kind of cool because like the deep breaths are supposed to calm you. So that's kind of cool. But just regulating your nervous system will help with your anxiety. Excuse me. Number four, look after your health after trauma. I don't really like how that says that. Look after your health after trauma. Okay. It's true. Having a healthy body can increase your ability to cope with stress of trauma, with the stress of trauma. The authors recommend seven to nine hours of sleep, avoiding alcohol and drugs, eating well-balanced meals, and proactively reducing stress. Okay. Well, you could probably do goat yoga. (laughs) That's something that they're offering in my small town um, at like the community center. Um, You could take walks, listen to your sweet podcasts. um, You know, just maybe get out into nature, stuff like that. So, and regular checkups at the doctor. Don't do drugs. And maybe don't drink all the time. I don't know. I'm not a drinker. I don't do drugs. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, it seems like this could work. So, that's it. That's the whole article. But, so to recap, the five behaviors of a victim of childhood trauma display displays through adulthood. Number one, chronic tension. Number two, social withdrawal. Number three, persistent panic. Number four, fear avoidance. Number five, underachievement. Getting help for that, one, there's only four of this, exercise to ease the impact of trauma. Excuse me, don't isolate yourself. Oh no, Archie agrees. Number three, regulate your nervous system. And number four, look after your health after trauma. Okay, so I hope I didn't bore y'all too much with that. I wanted to... um, 
I found another thing about journaling, like journal prompt, journal prompts for abuse and tra trauma healing. I feel like I can't talk today. Um, so I thought I would give you like five of those if you're a journaling person. Um, I think I'm going to probably pick that back up again because I kind of got away from it. I need to be more intentional with life. So um, finding my reason for wanting to be successful and lose weight, things like that. I have to figure this out. So I'm going to give you, I've got a list of 30, but I'm only going to give you five this time. And then maybe at the end of the next couple episodes, I'll give you five more. So the first one, and these are journal prompts for abuse and trauma healing. Number one, how do I currently feel about myself? How do I want to feel about myself? Ooh. Number two, in what ways has this past experience, the trauma, abuse, breakup, childhood, shaped me? Well, that would take a little while for me to explain. Number three, did I recognize I was experiencing trauma and abuse? When did I realize it was actually trauma or abuse? That's a good one. Number four, what can I learn from that experience? Okay, are they talking about the experience of the abuse or realizing that you were abused? I don't know. What can I learn from that experience? I'm guessing they're talking about the, the time that you were abused. Um, number five, what are some of the darker feelings that I am not letting go of? Ooh, I'm going to circle that one because I like that one. I might do that one in my journal. Um, so I just wanted to leave you guys with something and you can look this up on online. It's journaling prompts for abuse and trauma healing. So I also wanted to tell you guys something. I don't even know if this is a big deal or not, but, um, I was looking for topics today and I came across a list of the 45 must, must hear podcasts about child abuse. 45 of them. Kept Secrets was number 21 on that list. I was, <laughs> I was at work, which I probably shouldn't have been doing this while I was at work, but I had a minute and I was scrolling through it and I was like, oh my gosh. And like my coworkers are like, what? They're like, are you okay? Did you fall out of your chair? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm number 21. And they're like, what? <laughs> And so some people don't know I do a podcast at work. So I was like, I was genuinely like, whoa, this is cool. So I posted that, that link on my Facebook group, the kept secrets, a podcast about overcoming childhood trauma. Um, so it's pretty cool. You know, there's, there's other ones on there. Obviously there's 44 other ones on there that you could listen to and maybe get some, resources from them. Um, I just thought it was kind of cool. So if you are new to the program or to the podcast, uh, I do have a Facebook group, which I just said, which is the kept secrets, a podcast about overcoming childhood trauma. I love when people comment in there and like tell me their experiences or what they think about the podcast, things like that. Um, I like interacting with you guys. There's not a lot that goes on in there, but I love it. I was really hoping that we could pick that up a little bit. Um, 
The other thing is if you want to be part of the listener story segment, I'm still trying to get that going. Um, you can email me at kepsecretspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can be completely anonymous. Doesn't matter to me. I can use your name, uh, whatever. It's totally up to you. But I'm curious about how you guys um, have survived your trauma and how you're getting through things. And I think other listeners would be, um, would really be interested in hearing that too. So I really hope somebody reaches out on that. Um, you can also send me a direct message through Facebook. I will respond. Um, I, like I said, I love hearing from you guys. Literally one, one Saturday afternoon, my husband and I were driving to the racetrack and I was like, I don't think I want to do the podcast anymore. And he's like, why? And I was like, Well, you know, I just, I don't feel like a lot of my stuff is what I'm focusing on anymore. You know, like I kind of feel like I've run out of things to tell you guys. And he's like, well, you know, just give us some time. I'm sure um, some things will come to you. If I could find those dang journals, that would be helpful. Sure. But literally in that same car ride, I get this really sweet message from someone and I believe they posted it on the Facebook group page and it brought me to tears you guys she's she said that she binge listened to like 14 of the episodes and yeah you got that renewed my motivation a little bit and then you know we had to um go through the stuff with Belle the dog and I just wasn't in a good mental place and then today when I found the, the ranking of the podcast. I'm over 16,000 listens, which is awesome. Um, I'm a little nervous that people from my past might hear this, but you know, it's still my story and I'm not ashamed of it because it made me who I am. Uh, but I don't want any weirdness because I'm doing a podcast. So that's why I change names and things like that. Um, but my point in saying that was when I saw that list, I was, it motivated me again. I felt, I was like, people really are listening, you know? And, you know, like a week ago or something, I saw that I had lost a couple followers on Apple and I was like, no, like it hurt my feelings. And I was like, why are people unfollowing me? Did they not like my content? You know, like, what is it that you guys want to hear? Um, I have had a couple people reach out about topics and I just need to do more research on them. So, uh, that is all. I think I'm going to wrap it up because Archie dog needs to go outside as usual. About 50 minutes into my podcast, he starts freaking out, bringing the bell at the door. I gotta go outside. Okay. Sorry. I'm rambling, but you guys have a wonderful rest of your day doing whatever it is. And please reach out. I'm here. Um, if you want to be a guest on this podcast, um, I can figure it out and we can do it, whether it be over the phone or in person. Um, sometimes I think it would be more fun to have somebody to talk to while I'm doing this, but I talk to the dogs and I talk to you. So that's (laughs) the dog. That's all I got. So you guys have a good rest of your day and I hope that you will reach out and, um, be blessed in whatever you're doing. Bye.